Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, uh, all right, let's get to it. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 10 today. And I'm excited about 2 Corinthians 10 today because... Um, what Paul has been doing up to this point in the book is uh, for the first six or seven chapters, he was kind of laying the foundation for what he saw the role of ministry or the purpose of a Christian, what Christian ministry, what discipleship looked like. And then last week he took a little bit of a turn and talked about this collection that he was, um, this offering that he was collecting for the church in Jerusalem. And he encouraged the Corinthian church to get on board with this. And they were on board at first, but then after a year, they had kind of lost the zeal for it. So Paul spent a good chunk of chapter 8 and 9 reminding them the importance of uh, giving. But today, he takes a totally new turn. In chapter uh, chapter 10, um, there's no easy way to say this other than um, Paul is just going to wreck some fools today. He addresses his critics and what they've been saying about him and why the church has let these voices become the predominant voice in the church. When he was the one that came first and planted and laid a solid foundation, why are these folks coming in and turning up the foundation? Why are you letting them accuse me of things that you know me to not be? And so the way he does it is beautiful, um, and uh, I'm, I'm just excited for the SmackDown today. So what I want to do is, um, before we get into reading 10, I want to give you just a small background of who these critics pros- probably were, but also um, who the critics are that Paul is facing on a regular basis. In the early church, you had um, kind of three prevailing ideas that ran contrary to what Jesus taught. But the interesting thing is that these contrary ideas were, um, were masked to look like what Jesus taught. But they were Jesus plus a little something else. It was definitely Jesus, yeah, totally Jesus, but also these other things that coincidentally are more important than Jesus. And so these three categories of people um, are considered, the first would be um, the Gnostics. And I'm telling you this because it's important for where we're reading today, but also for the the whole of the New Testament. When you read Galatians, when you read uh, Philippians, Paul is, uh, Thessalonians, Paul is referencing um, these contrary ideologies. And we'll get to why it's important to address ideologies in a minute. But I want to I want to address these three because you'll you'll come up these will come up uh, regularly as you read through the New Testament. So the first critic would have been this group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics um, as G N O S T I C S. The Gnostics were a group of people who um, constantly had this um, uh, contrasting idea between the spirit and, and what we would consider as matter. So like the, 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 the stuff you can't touch and the stuff you can touch. The, the spiritual life, um, the heavenly life, the spirit, 
stuff and then the tangible physical stuff. So from a Gnostic perspective, the only thing that really mattered was the spiritual stuff. The, the physical stuff, the tangible stuff, this is all just temporary. It's eventually gonna go away when you die. The thing that matters most, the thing you should spend all of your time thinking about, worrying about, considering, is the spiritual side of stuff. And Paul's main argument to that was, if that's true, then we didn't need a resurrected Jesus. If the only thing that mattered was your spiritual life and the untouchable, unseen things, those are, those are valuable, because Paul says that the stuff here in this world um, that we can touch, that's transient. But if the only thing that mattered was the unseen stuff, your spirit and, and, and uh, the, the, the ideas behind Jesus' teaching, for example, then we didn't actually need Jesus to live and then die and then raise from the dead in bodily form and then ascend into heaven in human form and then also return back in human form and raise all of us from the dead. Both are equally important. That's what Paul would say, but this is one of his main critics, the Gnostics. The other, uh, another group of critics that he would face would, would be the Judaizers. Now, we've got Judaizers that are um, uh, people that would call themselves followers of Jesus, but would add on top of the teachings of Jesus um, an emphasis on the law of Moses um, that is now waiting on you. So the idea being that the law of Moses was completely fulfilled in Jesus. Right? When we stand before uh, God and, and uh, this, this sense of, okay, we have these commandments that you gave to Moses, and yes, they were like a diagnosis to us of sin. They were, they, they were a thing that needed to be fulfilled. But now they don't need to be fulfilled in you because they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the commandments on your behalf. Therefore, you're not standing before a holy God being declared guilty of breaking one of these commandments if Christ has fulfilled them for you. You follow? The idea that a Judaizer would bring would be, well, yeah, 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 but you are responsible for doing these other things. And um, these things that must be accomplished, like for example, circumcision. You can't be a Christian unless you observe this outward sign of the law. And Paul would say, no, 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 Jesus fulfilled all of that stuff. And so it, it, it matters very little whether you do that or not. Certainly you can participate in the things of the law, no one's stopping you, but that's not gonna get you more credit in God's account, and he's not gonna smile um, heavily on you as opposed to somebody else because you're observing the law and this person is not. And then the third critic would be the Hellenistics, or the Hellenists. Hellenists were people who had a Gentile Greek background and they got saved and they brought a lot of the Greek culture, um, the Greek way of life, um, their sense of how uh, the Greeks um, valued uh, uh, teaching and um, uh, robust char uh, charisma. They brought all that stuff with them. Uh, and so uh, a Hellenistic Christian would be a person who says, yeah, yeah, I follow Jesus, but I also on the weekend hedge my bets by going down to the temple and offering a sacrifice over there too because eh, you never know, right? I think, based off of my study and the commentaries that I've read, that the critics that Paul is addressing in 2 Corinthians 10 are the Hellenists. And I think that he's doing this is because the way that he addresses them, the response um, that he gives them, they're critiquing him as essentially being a good teacher, but, um, but being kind of absent and lacking authority when he's in person. So he, his, his letters are pretty bold, but when he's in person, he's not a very good speaker. So maybe a good writer, but not really a good speaker. 
Hellenists would offer that kind of a critique. And so what we assume is that what Paul is addressing are these believers who came in after he planted the church, came into the church and started putting a lot of emphasis on the showy, charisma, outward expression of being a good, polished believer and teacher. And in response, they're saying, hey, Paul, ah, he didn't really have it. He didn't have the it factor. But, but no worry, because we're here and we have it. So what's Paul going to say to those guys? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 10 and find out. 2 Corinthians 10. Um, we're just going to do 10 today, so I'm going to slow it down just a little bit, read a little bit, and then talk a little bit. So 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. It says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Ouch. Now, if you got caught up in that, that is Paul laying a smack down on his critics. He addresses their critique in his response. Hey, and, and the way he starts it here, I, Paul, myself, he uses this a couple times in his letters, and when he does this, what he's essentially saying is, um, this is him writing in his own handwriting, right? So often what Paul did is he would have a scribe follow him around, and he would dictate things, and the scribe would write it. Well, at this point in the letter, Paul basically says, hey, give me that pen. I'm going to say some things with my own hand. So he takes the pen and he starts writing and this is where he picks up and he's essentially saying, look, I know folks are saying I'm more bold with the pen than in person. Um, I plan on being bold enough in person to these fools, but not to you. Don't worry about me being bold because when I show up, I will be bold enough, but I'm going to do it to the right people. So the critique of, I'm real bold in my letters, but timid in person, you're going to watch a different side of me when I show up, but I'm not giving that side to you. I'm going to give it to the people who need it. So Paul has plans for confronting his critics, but he <clears throat> is being gentle and meek with the church. He says in verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So the first person to model this would have been Jesus, right? Jesus spoke differently to the woman at the well than to the people who were changing money in the temple, right? To the woman at the well who legitimately had a man issue. She had multiple husbands and multiple boyfriends. All right, according to us, we would have had major issues. We would have been, you know, we need to have some counseling sessions with this woman at the well, not Jesus. He comes up to her and he's just having a conversation with her. And he's talking with her about the importance of worship. Humble, meek. But what does he do when he sees people trying to make a dollar in the temple? He, he sits down and he braids a whip. Now, I don't know how long it takes to braid a whip, but that, that anger was, it was boiling for a little while, I think. And then he goes in and you just see him like flipping tables and like whipping stuff. And I just imagine he's like letting doves out and they're flying and just the place was a mess. 
You watch how he speaks to the religious leaders, the people who are consciously leading God's people astray and taking advantage of them. He was not meek and gentle, he was bold with them. And so Jesus models this and Paul is saying, I'm following Jesus' lead, but I'm doing this because I want you to do the same thing. The point that Paul is trying to illustrate here in the way he's responding to his critics is that there is a time for humility and loving correction and there is a time for boldness. Now at this point, some of you are like, I knew it. See, my wife was on me about posting that thing on Facebook and now see, and you're elbowing her, there is a time for boldness. The trouble is, we need the wisdom from the Holy Spirit to know when it's time to be bold. Because just because you think it's time to be bold does not mean it's time to be bold. And your definition of boldness is almost never Christ's definition of boldness. You follow? There's a place for boldness and there's a place for meekness. But unfortunately, the posture that we hold most often is to always walk around in boldness. All right, so when you hear me say there's a time for meekness and there's a time for boldness, well, you, you, just, you just don't know me. It's always time for boldness. I'm always on 10, 11 sometimes. I'm always on for boldness. I'm there. I'm king bold. No, no, you're not king bold. You don't know how to control your mouth. You have no self-control. That's not the same as being bold. The thing about being bold and walking around with boldness all the time is that um, when you walk with a posture of boldness and, and you're constantly ready for a fight, it's very difficult to switch on gentleness because what it requires of you is to walk backwards. And bold people who always walk around with their chest puffed out bold have a very difficult time walking backwards. Because what happens is when your posture is do not step up to me, because I will wreck you. When you are required to be meek and gentle, no one will listen, no one will see it, because their first impression of you was that you were bold, and then they, they, don't, have, they, they, can't, they don't have eyes to see you walking back into gentleness and meekness when you're always on boldness. Are you, are you following me? When everything has to be a point that you make, when you have to be right about everything, when you've got to make sure they understand your point of view, whether it's right or not, when that's your default posture, when you are required of Christ to walk in meekness and gentleness, you're gonna find it almost impossible to do because you can't walk back from 11. But guess what you can do? You can crank it up as needed. So I would argue from the breadth of the New Testament teaching is that our default posture, if we look at Jesus, if we look at Paul, should be gentleness and meekness. You should always be walking around in like a one or a two. You should always have the posture of approachability. Your calendar should reflect the fact that you are approachable and ready and willing to have a dialogue and a conversation. And if 
needed, you can crank up the boldness and speak truth, but only when needed. When is it needed? When the Holy Spirit tells you it's needed. Boy, if there was ever a message that was valuable for us today, huh? Because this entire generation has been empowered with the tools to speak to more people than folks a hundred years ago would have ever met in their entire life. The responsibility, I don't want that to be lost on you. If you take the heavy responsibility of stepping into the public sphere on a social media platform, you should, res- you should constantly remind yourself who your allegiances are with because that stuff will make you so drunk on power to just toss nonsense into the, the unknown and think that it never has an impact on anything moving forward. But the truth is, is that people are watching you and they're reading what you put out and they're forming opinions about what you say and how you say it. And like it or not, those opinions will go before you when you start talking about things that are of most importance, like Jesus. So you walk around like, I I don't understand why nobody wants to hear about anything I have to say about Jesus. It's because you spend most of your free time talking about nonsense at like 11 of boldness, most of which you have no basis for anything that you're saying, but man, you sure are bold about it when it's time to talk about the real stuff and God puts somebody across your path. You're doing more work trying to walk backwards so that you can get on a level of gentleness and, and meekness to preach the gospel Like, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to do the extra gymnastics work of trying to convince this person that you are worth listening to, that you are legitimately a follower of Christ? Uh, I know I say a lot out here, but uh, just ignore that for a minute. Let's talk about important. How about, how about, how about that's not a thing? How about you make the decision now to just shut your mouth or delete those apps off your phone. I am convinced that over the next 30 to 40 years, when we have the ability to go back and do social studies on what the internet has done to us in a very short amount of time, over 20 years, and the way that it changed us and shift us, we're gonna be appalled. We're gonna be appalled at the people we became because we allowed this world to shift our allegiances and our affections. We became so hungry to be liked by this world that we found ourselves before a holy God not being liked by Him. Are you following me? I hope so, because this is really important. Because we live in a day today where evangelism, it's not just randomly knocking on folks' doors. It's not just laying a tract. It's not, it's, it's, it's not putting out these um, big, you know, mega conferences and saying, hey, lost people, come, come hear the gospel. They've heard enough. They've heard enough of church folk talking about half gospel things on the internet. They don't want to come to any of our stuff anymore. So we're going to have to go. 
like the Great Commission, we're gonna have to go. And when you go, there is a persona that goes before you that you can control if you just learn to shut your mouth. But there's more than just shutting your mouth. There is a submitting your mouth to the Word of God. I'm not saying you can never say anything. There are times where you will need to ramp up the boldness, but in a culture where we're always bold, I'm just trying to be as careful as possible to not give you a license to kill. You will need to be bold when you go, but that is not your default posture. You follow? It's good. This is rich. It's only the first two verses. Let's get to it. Verse three. So verse three says, for though we walk in the flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's good news. What are these strongholds, Paul? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Pause right there. Paul is ramping up his boldness right now because his critics have accused him of walking in the flesh. Now that is a sensitive thing to say to Paul because in Paul's mind, walking in the flesh doesn't mean what these critics are saying it means. For Paul, walking in the flesh is satisfying the lusts of the flesh. But for these guys, when they say he was walking in the flesh, what they're saying is that the outward expression of his inward transformation, it ain't much to look at. When he stands up and talks, it's just kind of, it's not very appealing. He's not very charismatic. I have a hard time following him. I fall asleep most days when he's speaking. So Paul meets them halfway and says, yes, we're humans. We are literally walking in the flesh. But what these fools are forgetting to acknowledge is that we don't war in the flesh. When I stand up to teach, according to Paul, the work that needs to be done is not a polished outward response or expression. Now, now it may come out that way just because of the kind of person you are. Now, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty animated when I speak. I don't know that I could talk if you handcuffed my hands together. I kind of walk around a lot. There's a lot of this and this and this. There's a lot of, it's, I'm like one of those animatronic things at Disney World. I'm sorry, now you can't unsee that. But the truth is, is that for me, there is a lot of outward expression. For Paul, that stuff wasn't there and it was for good reason because what Paul was trying to do or address was that it's not this outward stuff that makes the difference. It, like I could stand here and not move and speak the most boring and the most monotone, but if the Holy Spirit is at work, it does not matter. In fact, it serves the purpose to prove that the power doesn't lie in the person, it's 
inside the person. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul is saying, look, there's a work. We're we're literally walking in the flesh. I'm a human being in flesh and and bone. But, But when I speak, when I minister, I'm not addressing the skin and bone in the congregation. I'm addressing the stuff behind the skin and bones that control the skin and bone. You you following? This is really important because where he goes is crucial to us understanding where we're supposed to go next. What I mean by that is before we ever walk something out, before we ever make an action or do anything with our physical body, those actions have already been controlled by your mind and your heart. When Paul says our weapons are not of the flesh, what he's saying is that everything that we think ultimately translates into some kind of action. As humans, we're convinced that if you want to change the person, you just change the actions. But from Paul's perspective, if you want to change the person, you need to change what the person is thinking about. Because everything that you see is controlled by something that you don't see. Before we act or walk or do anything, everything we do is already processed ahead of time in our mind. This means, now follow follow this process, that to have influence over people's actions, you have to be able to infiltrate their mind. This is one of those things that once you hear it, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to unsee it. You're going to see it everywhere. And, and most of us as being Christians, you're aware of this. So this is kind of like an underline in something that you know and a reinforcement. But in order to manipulate an action of a person, it starts by infiltrating their mind. Our minds on a regular basis are infiltrated by ideologies, arguments, philosophies, worldviews that are all designed to, once they're implanted in your mind, start affecting the way that you act. This is in everything. If you can be manipulated to think a different way, then you can be manipulated to act a different way. This is what was at the heart of Paul's contrast with the Hellenists. The Hellenists are saying, just change the outward stuff. And Paul is saying, the outward stuff will come when the inward stuff is changed. The problem is, the outward stuff that everyone wants to change is being manipulated by an ideology or a worldview that has nothing to do with Jesus. And so when I address congregations, when I do ministry work, the weapons I use have nothing to do with outward expressions of walking out the gospel. They have everything to do with a transforming of the heart because if that takes place, everything else will fall in line. We're convinced it's the other way. How do we overcome addiction? How do we stop doing these things that we don't want to do? Well, replace it with a different addiction. No, no, no. Paul would say, replace it with a different affection. 
You're doing that stuff because you love it in here. If you stop loving it, you won't do it. So Paul unravels this, this, this war that he sees. It's this war that, that, that is essentially in the mind, positioning the mind as the primary battlefield, and in this battlefield, what we're supposed to be doing is addressing all the faults, worldviews, ideologies, and arguments that come our way that are against Christ. Now, Paul knows what his critics are doing, and he's responding so that he can address them in the correct manner. He sees this working in his life, when he says, I'm ready to punish every disobedience, when your obedience is complete, we're taking every captive, every thought captive. These weapons that he uses, these weapons are not flesh and blood weapons. They're not manifest human stuff. They're at the mind heart level. And he's presenting this in a way to help them understand that they're thinking about the wrong things. And, and, and this is, as we go forward, this is what's really important. The mind, when it's surrendered to Christ, the body's going to follow. And so what Paul does through the rest of this chapter is he starts, he, he, he refuses to acknowledge the critiques of these people, and he only addresses the ideologies that are behind their critiques, which is an important lesson for us. Because if you spend most of your time in this world combating the flesh and blood and not addressing the arguments that are manifesting the flesh and blood, you're not going to get anywhere. The way we think about things, the things that we think about, the affections in our heart are the real issues. And if you can understand that, you can start seeing some major changes in your life. This is why Paul says in verse 5, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The real work for a disciple isn't avoiding this sin or that sin. The real work of a disciple is taking captive philosophies that steer you away from Jesus. That's the real work of a disciple. And we make it about everything else. You know, how, how you doing in your walk with Christ? Good, man. I read my Bible this week. All right. Went to church. Good. Did you spend any time holding up philosophies in your mind that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God up against the Word and surrendering those things? Did I do what now? This is the tragedy of the modern church. Most people don't even know that this is something we're supposed to be doing. Most people think that what they think is right and does not need to be weighed against this. The truth is that if you take every thought captive, when you weigh the Word of God against your own thoughts, the stuff that we struggle with as sin, all that stuff just kind of starts resolving itself and it becomes so much easier. I have so many conversations with people about the struggles that they have 
and the ways they try to get around or not have those struggles. But very few times do these people ever talk about submitting their mind to this so that they think differently about that and eventually stop loving that and then it's a thing that's not a thing anymore. We spend so much time getting upset in our hearts, our minds about what we're doing, but very little time thinking about what we think about that manifests what we're doing. So I think the question that would be most helpful for us today is, okay, if this is true, if the real battlefield is our mind, if we're supposed to be addressing the stuff that we see by hitting the stuff we don't see, well, how does that happen? How do we take every thought captive to Christ? How do we combat ideologies in other folks? How do we combat worldviews and ideologies in our mind that are off? How do we do that? Well, it's simple. It is a work of the Spirit and also a spiritual discipline. It is something that the Holy Spirit does in you and it is also something that you practice on a regular basis. And what I mean by that is that taking every thought captive looks like Holy Spirit conviction and you responding to it appropriately. Taking every thought captive is you going through your daily life and then having some response to something and the Holy Spirit say, hey, that's not me. And instead of ignoring it, you say, you're right, I repent and I'm gonna, I'm gonna manifest that change, I'm gonna go to this person, and I'm gonna say, hey, I apologize for my outburst. That's not the example that I wanna set as a follower of Christ. And the person in the accounting department is like, uh, okay. But what you've done is you've set a tone in your workplace and in yourself that those kind of ideologies and worldviews and arguments and thoughts, they don't live here anymore. It's going to require a humbling of yourself. It's going to require you going back and circling back to a few relationships and saying, hey, I was wrong, and God showed me how I was wrong, and I'm sorry. I want to walk a different way. That's what taking every thought captive looks like, the Holy Spirit preempting this current broadcast to let you know you're a fool. (laughs) Change your heart. Stop being like that. So it's that, it's the Holy Spirit doing the work, and it's also a spiritual discipline of you making a regular practice of looking at the Bible, studying it, and making it part of your prayer life. And what I mean by that is, I kind of alluded to this before, making a habit of comparing arguments and worldviews against the Bible. Okay, I hold this position. Is this position anywhere even in Scripture? Where did I learn this position? Well, a pastor taught it to me. All right, where'd he get it from? Was it in here? Or is it something he thought was interesting or he read in a book that wasn't this book? We got a lot of that. We got a lot of people publishing content that is not rooted in this, but just because they have some credentials or they're affiliated with an association that you like, you will take what they say as the gospel, but you're not weighing it against the book. You're not taking the stuff to the Lord in prayer. You're not spending time in prayer, reading this and then praying, all right, I see how this is a thing that Paul is telling me I need to obey. Lord, am I really obeying it? 
I want to say yeah, but am I? Am I truly walking in obedience to this? Surrounding yourself with folks who can give you honest uh, assessments of who you are and where you, and the way, because look, everybody thinks that they were right. When you scroll through uh, Facebook and you watch those ridiculous videos of the people online who say things like, oh, can I speak to your manager? You know what I'm talking about. And then it escalates and escalates and escalates, and then before they know, this person is on somebody's video, and then they're, they're viral because of their inappropriate response. I guarantee you, in that moment, that person thought, I am completely justified. But when they go back and they watch that video, very few of them say, yeah, should have acted differently. They see that and, they, and, and, and they, they, they're, they're convinced, no, no, I was right. Why, why are you all freaking out? Don't you see my point? How do you combat that lifestyle? How do you combat a perspective where you are always in the right? You surround yourself with people who can give you accurate perceptions. And so when they say, when, when you say, I was right, right? And they say, oh, no, you weren't right. You don't say, well, uh, we're done. No, 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 no you say, really? How was I in the wrong? Well, this, this, and this. Man, I, I, don't, I don't see it, but I, I know you love me and I trust you, so maybe I should give that some serious consideration because I hadn't thought of that before. Whoa, guess what? We're treading into territory of, of things that the world does not do. Nobody in the world does this. This is why we are a holy set-apart people because we're the only ones in the world who do this. We're the only ones who submit ourselves to a different authority from heaven and say, it's not what I think. It's not my experiences. It's not how I walk through and process stuff that matters. It's what he says that matters. And so if something that I think or believe or see is different than this, I've got to break. It's me that has to change. So make a habit of posting your ideas and ideologies up and, and, and submitting them to the Word of God. And, and when you realize that your belief is wrong, let God change you. Now let's, let's pick it up in verse 7. Ten seven says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. All right, so what is he doing here? He's gonna start addressing some of their ideologies that control the way they've been acting in Corinth and, and dissecting them not on their actions, but on the way that they're thinking about this stuff. So he says, look at, look at what is before your own eyes. Look at these people who are coming in. If somebody is confident that they are in Christ, please let them remind himself that just as he is in Christ, so also are we. Hey, same team. If they say they're of Christ, so am I, same team. Why are they critiquing me and comparing themselves against me when we're on the same team? Verse eight, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. I would love, I'd pay good money to watch somebody say that to Paul's face. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. 
Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Oh, we wouldn't want to do that. Because when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, it shows that they are without understanding. So these critics are saying like, hey, uh, these guys are acting like church leaders, but they have no love for fellow workers. Um, Paul's saying these guys are accusing Paul of being too loud in letters, or too bold in letters, but uh, being too timid in person. They're, they're comparing themselves against a weak standard to look more elite. And Paul is saying, look, their actions are proving my point. They're motivated by bad ideologies. Their whole actions, their whole arguments are motivated by the sense that deep down they feel like we are in competition with each other, which is wrong. That has no basis in the kingdom of God. These guys are acting like non-believers because they're thinking like non-believers. If they were submitting their mind to Jesus, then they would see Paul, me, as a fellow worker, not competition. They would understand why I'm gentle in, my, uh, uh, in, in person and bold uh, in my letters, because this church needs a little bit of both. Uh, but above all, they wouldn't compare themselves against other people. That's something that pagans do. It's something that non-believers do. It's not something that we do anymore. We left that in the grave. We left that behind us. But that right there, that's probably the most stinging argument for us today because the greatest temptation of our generation, I think, is comparison. This is where we constantly get our shoelaces tied together and trip up over and over and over again because you are convinced that to measure up and to find value, you have to compare yourself with someone else. Now, the idea being, I'm going to find worth by measuring up against something that I can see. Not a standard that Christ gives, but something that I can see. <clears throat> and it would be as ridiculous as uh, this illustration. If we were going to have uh, a little competition in this room to see who is the tallest. All right? So, and I'm not in it. I'm not in it. Just the tallest folks stand up in this room. They go stand next to each other. We can have them come up and stand in front of everybody, and we can have a definitive winner. This is the tallest person. And then I walk into the room, and they're like, okay, well, he is now the tallest person. And then we have a special Sunday where the entire FSU basketball team shows up, and I am no longer the tallest person in the room. The idea being that if we just set a standard and say this person is the tallest, tallest off of what? Tallest off of the person standing next to them. Tallest in the entire world. Tallest off of what standard? This is, the, this is the idiocy that Paul is trying to get us to communicate, or trying to understand when he says that these guys are comparing their spiritual maturity against each other rather than God's standard. It leads you nowhere. It lies to you about how far along you actually are. It tells you stories about what you are when you are not actually that thing. It gives confidence to things that are not true, and it gives you boldness to walk around, but it, no, it has no real long-lasting change because it has no relevance in anything actual or true. So this is what Paul is saying. Paul knows that this is what's going on, and so he says comparing against each other proves you have no understanding. Your action of comparison 
proves that your entire worldview is wrong. The idea that you would put yourself up against other human beings and measure your worth against them proves that deep down in your heart, you're thinking wrongly about what value actually is. If you're going to measure, measure against the correct standard. Measure against the standard that Jesus gives you. Measure against Him and not each other. Are you knocking it out of the park? Well, maybe compared to this guy who's barely got his life together. But are you knocking it out of the park when you stand in the presence of a holy God? Are you even doing what He asked you to do? That's the issue. We posture ourselves in ways that make us feel good, but we don't like standing in the shadow of a holy God seeing how we measure up to what he's called us to. And that's Paul's argument. Go to verse 13. From this point, he starts talking about his boasting and what he's been called to. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. I'm not interested in getting into a comparison to see who is the tallest. I'm not interested in comparing myself against this standard that you guys have set up based off of a false ideology. Here's what I'm all about, doing what God told me to do. And he called me here. This is the region he has for me. And this is the only thing that I'm interested in. I'm going to boast only with regard to the area of influence that God assigned to us. For not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of, all, of work already done in another areas of, in, another, excuse me, another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. So after exposing his critics for wrong thinking, he reminds Corinth of his calling. He says, you guys are what God called me to. I planted this church with the work of the Holy Spirit, so this is what I'm gonna be measured at at the end of my life. Not how did I measure up in my speaking ability against these guys' standards that came out of nowhere. How did I love you well? That's what I'm gonna be measured against. And so that's the only thing I'm concerned about. If you're gonna measure, measure against the right standard. So the standard being, was I faithful to what God asked me to do? And this is why verse 18 sums it up so well. It's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. How do we sum that up? How do we make that as easy as possible? The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks about you. It doesn't matter what you think about you. All right, hold on. 
I'm gonna speak prophetically here just for a second because I feel like the Holy Spirit kind of pushing in on that. Some of you need to hear this, so look at me. It does not matter what you think of you. Some of you have been living in this shadow of not accomplishing things you should have. At your age, you should be farther along or your parents are disappointed because you didn't accomplish these things, whether they actually are disappointed or not. That's what haunts you. You're convinced you don't measure up because you have set a standard for yourself. And Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter what I think about me. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. It only matters what Jesus thinks about me. So just for a moment, let's look at what Jesus thinks about you. Is Jesus pleased with you? The Bible says yes. All right, and if you're quick on notes, good luck, but we are recording it so you can go back and listen to it later. What does Jesus think about you? Well, the Bible says that he is pleased with you as you obey him. As you obey and follow him, he is pleased with you. Let me give you some examples. Colossians 1.10. We're told that walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is pleasing to Jesus. Walking in a way that is worthy of the cross and the murder and the resurrection, that's pleasing to Jesus. Romans 12.1, presenting your body as a living sacrifice is pleasing to Jesus. He loves that. <coughs> Romans 14.13, avoiding stumbling blocks or hindering other brothers and sisters is pleasing to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking the truth in love is pleasing to Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.1-3, praying for your government, no matter who's in office, is pleasing to Jesus. 1 Timothy 5.4, supporting family members in need. Buddy, that is pleasing to Jesus. Hebrews 13.16, sharing what you have with other people is pleasing to Jesus. 1 John 3.22, walking in obedience and obeying what the Bible says as commands is pleasing to Jesus. So how do we sum up today? What have we learned in 2 Corinthians 10? One, walk in humility and be bold when necessary. That's one. Two, tear down every competing ideology and worldview that opposes itself against Christ and never stop doing it because you will be surprised how deep those roots actually go in your own heart. And three, stop worrying about what others think and get serious about what Jesus thinks. These are the words of Paul to the church in Corinth, and these are the words of encouragement to us today. Amen? All right, let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.